I teach our youth staff, teachers, how to teach. That's a little bit of a mouthful and a tongue twister with that much teaching involved in the sentence itself. But I like to do it in a creative way or as Randy Georgie points out, one of the ways that I get him back for kickback games where he tortures us, me in particular, and I got to torture him for a little bit. And so somewhere along the way, I picked this up in trying to illustrate to them the fine balance that we have as we prepare a spiritual meal for our students with the word of God, the meat and the substance of that meal. So I would order a pizza, several pizzas actually. I found out a fun thing. You can order on dominoes.com a pizza without cheese, but it doesn't quite know what to do, or rather it's not sure you knew quite what to do, and so it pops up a box that makes it clear to you that you are ordering a cheese with bread and tomato sauce, or a pizza, I'm sorry, with bread and tomato sauce and no cheese and no toppings. It makes it clear that's what you want, but you can order that. If you didn't know that, if you just want bread and tomatoes, you can get that from Domino's for, it's now $6.99 on their medium, two medium pizza deal, but you can get that. Of course, there's the Many variations of pizzas that we normally order, pepperoni being number one, Hawaiian being the most debated, although also quite liked quite often, sausage being often claimed as liked and never finished as a pizza. I have stories about that. Those of you that say sausage is your favorite pizza, you're lying. You don't know it, but you are because you will take one slice of sausage pizza, there'll be seven left, and you'll go eat the other pizzas as well usually pepperoni. But I also order another pizza. My favorite pizza, by the way, is Roadkill from Klondike here in town. Hands down, my favorite pizza. Uh, It's not the only one I like, but that one's my favorite. But there's another one that I order for our staff, and I will get a pizza with multiple toppings on it without going too crazy on the cost, and then we will take it to the youth snack bar, and we will start dumping everything on it. A little bit of sour candy, a little bit of Tabasco sauce, maybe a little bit of soy sauce if it happens to be in the fridge that day. Whatever toppings or packets we have from various uh, fast food places that the college ministry probably has gathered, if it's in there and it's edible, even if it's not preferable, we load the pizza up. And so they have a cheeseless pizza, they have good pizza, and then they have this monstrosity a concoction, much like when your junior high kid went to the fountain of sodas or 7-Eleven and they just filled it up with everything that they could put in there. And of course, us adults figured out a long time ago, that just tastes bad. But the junior hires think it's the best mix that they can create. So we have these pizzas and I tell them they have to eat some of each. So they eat the one that does not have quite enough on there for most of us. If all I got you, or if all we had for a church potluck was cheeseless pizza in the gym, most of you would refrain. But if all we had was the monstrosity, many of you would also choose to refrain. But I have them take a bite, not so much to torture them, but to remind them of this. It's very easy in this position as you're trying to create a meal for your listeners, your audience, the people that have come to be fed on the word, to take 
the substance, what God said, and to put so much on it that you can no longer enjoy the substance. There's a lot of flavor going into it. There's a lot of extras and toppings, but it's too much. Instead of being a gourmet chef that brings out the flavor in everything you're preparing, you've simply smothered it. You took a pizza to the icy or the slurpy machine and you dumped some of everything on it like a junior high student might do and then call it good. That, by the way, junior hires, you might think less of me for this, high school too, is how I feel about hot Cheetos and Takis, is that you just kept adding flavor to it and you didn't know when to stop. Some of you would disagree. Most of the parents, I think, are probably in my boat. But that pizza is to remind them we need to make sure that the, the substance of God's word stays as the substance, as the feature. That whatever we add in explaining it brings out the flavor and accentuates what's already there and does not mask or smother it. It's easy to think that we need to do a lot of extras if you were online at all in Christian circles this week. You might have even seen some examples of that. I don't want to call out any particular churches or things they're doing, um, but there was a particular series that multiple churches were doing that, in my opinion, seemed to be smothering. You can talk to me off camera at some point if you want to talk about that a little bit, but it was that monstrosity pizza where we just went too far too much, but here's the reality. The gospel, though simple, needs no embellishment. It's already sensational enough. The gospel in its smallest form, which I'll share, or its longest form, which is pretty close to what Paul shares and I will also share, is sufficient not just to save but to share. It's sufficient to be stated. Even in our testimonies we do this. When we think that we need an elaborate story and there are amazing elaborate stories of what God has done, we just heard one. But we don't need to add to it. Your story, church kids, is not less sensational because you don't have the same story that was just shared. It is equally spectacular because it's the story of Christ, the power of God, of which we are not ashamed. And it's all that's needed. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to try to present it to somebody and to, to, to try to connect with their life in particulars, but we need to avoid smothering it. That's true of all of God's word, but especially the gospel. That the gospel is sufficient in its presentation because it is the power of God to change lives. So as we dive in today, we're going to camp out in one little section and then go all over Romans again, but it's spelling out Romans 10, 9, and 10, the gospel. Paul's starting to wrap up the gospel. He's going to transition to sanctification. But when he states 9 and 10, he's pointing back to everything he said. It's the long-form gospel, and it's his call to repent. It's his call to salvation to the listener. It's his call to who the listeners will then share the gospel with later. 
Join me in Romans 10, verse 9 through 17. I'm going to read it through, and then we'll go back a little bit. Because, and that tells you there's more to the context, as I've encouraged you all summer, make sure you're reading Romans on your own as well. Go back and read all of chapter 10, or all of 1 through 10 this morning, well, this afternoon, not right now, but or this week, read all of Romans if you have the chance. But because, that's pointing you back, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Skipped over chapter 9. I might and very well might get to parts of it next week. Some of you know what's in it and have been waiting, and I'm leaving you in the dust for the moment at least. If I don't get to it next week, you can always contact me and we can discuss it at a different point. Paul says some interesting things in chapter 9 that we like to struggle with, but I want to focus today on the gospel. The struggle is not what it says, it's whether we believe what it says. Verse, 10, or verse 9 and 10, it's the simplicity of the gospel. That's it. There's no more. If you confess and you believe in Jesus, then you are saved. No matter the sins that are spelled out in chapter 1 and that are beyond that list and anywhere else in Scripture, no matter how bad, by the way, when we read the catechism this morning that you look at it and think our culture is not very good at just those three no matter our sins, if we confess and believe, then we're saved. No matter the conscience ignoring that was talked about in chapter 2, no matter how much Jiminy Cricket is tapped on your shoulder and it's not Jiminy Cricket, and you've just flat out ignored him, no matter how much this isn't a real thing, but we see it in cartoons, the good guy and the bad guy have fought and you've listened to the bad guy every time. If we confess and we believe in Jesus, then we are saved. No matter the no's and the no ones and the nobodies of chapter 3, chapter 1, 2, and 3, condemnation in moment after moment after moment. Paul's not saying that to leave us stuck. He's saying that to say we're without excuse. But no matter those no's, if we confess and we believe, then we are saved. And we have reason to rejoice. In Romans 7, no matter the continued conflict that Christians still face, that Paul lays out, and I think he's admitting that he too struggled with, there is therefore now no condemnation, as he states in Romans 8. Because if we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe that he was raised from the dead, then we will be saved. 
The gospel is simply that simple. That is the core and the entirety of Scripture, that God is and that he saves and that it isn't about how good we are in the process. It leads to that. That's Romans 12 and it's coming. But we don't earn his salvation. It's grace. And there is no more condemnation and there is no possibility of separation as Romans 8 say. We are saved and secure if we have confessed Christ and put our faith in him. Paul's wrapping up a long presentation of the gospel. The short version is this, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, or thus loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're familiar with John 3, Jesus is talking to a religious leader who knows everything, and he presents the gospel in a simple way. Okay, not so simple if you take into account that he mentions the born-again part, which blew the guy's mind. But he phrases it in, in 16 very simply. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is not by what we do because we don't do it. God has. And then you have Paul's long-form gospel. I'm going to read it in a long version. This isn't the longest because you can just go read chapters 1 through 10. But this is that Romans road, picking out some verses, but more than we typically share. I'm going to start at 16. I'm going to jump around a lot. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along visually. But if you just want to hear it, I'm going to read. I might add too much. If there's part, there's no such thing really, but not when you're reading scripture. But if there's parts that you think I should have left out, then just focus on the parts along the way of the Roman road that highlight God's grace. 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, with their con while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Quick pause, wonderfully, that is not where Paul stops. Picking up at 416. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read 8.1 again. I love that verse. You should as well. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Because if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I'm going to stop there for the tech guys. This is the power of God. That we are condemned, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we are no longer condemned if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. This is the power of God that saves Paul or Saul. Same guy, two different versions of his name. It's the power that restores Peter when he's denied Christ and yet is restored. It's the power that saves all of the Marys that are in Scripture and all of the Marys that have come after Scripture that have put their faith in Christ. It's the power that redeems Paul and Barnabas when they're fighting over John Mark, and it redeems John Mark. And it makes an amazing double missionary team when they split up. It's the power of generations of the church afterwards that took out the mighty nation of Rome. It's the power that invades the Herodian family, as we see in Acts, when Paul is talking to Agrippa II, part of the Herodian family. This is the family that came after Christ. This is the family that killed John the Baptist. This is the family that has put the disciples to death, that imprisoned Peter. It's the family of the man that's eaten by worms in Caesarea. It's a bad family. And yet Paul is sharing the gospel with it. And at 26, 28, and 29, Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response is this, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me. Because it's the power of God to save one of the most corrupt families in the history of the world. Whether they were saved or not, we don't know. We know from Scripture that the gospel went into the household of Caesar. We know from history that, as I mentioned, the gospel ultimately gets to the heart of the Caesars. Whether he actually believed or not, we don't totally know. 
but we know that it got there. And that, that empire is changed. And it isn't why it crippled in terms of power, but it is why it changed. And it's the power that's gone across the globe, and it's the power that you can track when missionaries went with grace, and it brought so much more than just the gospel. But as Paul says, the gospel is the most important part, because if it's only for this life that we are changed, then we are to be pitied. But if it's for eternity and this life, then we are to rejoice as we do a communion. Because it's the power of God to transform me. It's the power of God to change you. And if you put your faith in Christ, then you have a compelling story to share, which is where Paul goes next. 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. This is an ambassadorial commissioning. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 20, in Romans 10, 14 through 17. It's phrased a little differently. In 2 Corinthians, Paul declares that we are ambassadors of reconciliation, making God's appeal to the world that needs the power of the gospel, the power of God, the power of his words to transform their life. And Paul declares here, How can they be transformed if we don't share? It's a compelling purpose. Now before you get all tied up in knots and become afraid that you might fail to share and someone will go to hell because of that, it is a fear-free compelling purpose. God is sovereign over that. Nobody will miss out on hell because you failed. Take that off the table. That is not scriptural. And yet, God says, this is how I orchestrated things. That those who've experienced the power of the gospel will then go with beautiful feet to those who need to hear the power of the gospel. That we will go share. We are meant to come and celebrate communion. And we are meant to go out to our valley and invite others to join us the next month at communion or the next decade, but hopefully in their lifetime. And it isn't about communion itself, it's about the one we celebrate, that we would walk out to campuses and workplaces and athletic fields and while shopping and in neighborhoods as ambassadors, not just as people that disappear every Sunday morning at a freakishly early hour to get dressed and go do something nobody knows what, but that we would go to those neighbors and point them to Christ, that we would confess the good news, not because we don't know it, we've already done that and come to faith, but because we do know it and we are inviting others to faith. 
Romans 10 is confessing the good news. Either for the first time, Lord, I follow you. I am condemned, but you have saved. Save me. I believe. Or I have been saved. And I will share with you the good news that you too might confess Christ with me. God has chosen us to spread the gospel. For some of us, especially if we're introverts, that's terrifying. We would prefer to never talk to another human in our lifetime or at least not those outside of our close circle. For some of you, like friends of mine, you think it's amazing and wonderful and you have this supernatural, sometimes literally, ability to walk up to a stranger and find out their life story. But both of us are called to confess Christ. Both of us are called to look for doors that God has opened and say, oh, I think this is my moment to tell about my Savior and the power of God to transform me and the power of God to transform you. We are called as ambassadors to share the gospel. We are called in Romans, or challenged, I should say, better in Romans 10, to confess the good news, either for the first time or for, for the millionth time and any opportunity that we have to share where God has made it clear, go talk to them, like Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts 7, 8, sorry, in Acts 8. Go talk to them. For those of you who don't know Christ, if you're in this room and you have never known Christ, then you may have been in this room many times before, but it never clicked. I invite you to confess Christ and follow him for the first time. I'm going to pray in a minute. I'm going to invite you to join me in that prayer and say, Lord, forgive me. For those of you that have already confessed Christ, Romans 10 challenges us to be ambassadors. It doesn't use that, that word. In a minute, I'm going to have you pray for some of those people. In the youth group, we call it the empty chair. We have a visual reminder on stage in an African camp chair, travel chair, which has its own cool story. But it's a reminder that there's always room for their friend that doesn't know Christ. I said it earlier in this series for the church, I would just call it, and this is something I pray almost every time I drive in the lot, or at least many times when I drive into the lot. I pray it as well when I pass First Christian and other churches in town that God would fill the pews and the parking spots with people that need grace, with people that celebrate grace and go as ambassadors, but in particular those who have not yet heard and responded so I'm going to give you a moment to pray for them. And then the last thing that we'll do is celebrate Christ through communion and worship again and a benediction. But we're meant to celebrate. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There are not steps to do to be better or to earn more. We have it all from the beginning when we follow Christ. His grace is placed on us and we are justified and yes, he is sanctifying us. That's Romans 12 and beyond. But we already have all of the blessing of God in his grace when we first come to faith. 
We're going to do a couple of these things now. First, for those who've never followed Christ, if you're in the room, just pray with me something like this. It's not a magical prayer. It's that you're talking to God. But if you need the words, I'm going to lead you in them. So everybody's going to bow their heads. But this is for those who don't know Christ for the first time. This is what we call an altar call. I'm not going to make you come up front. But this is that response that you would confess Christ. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Romans 1 through 3 is right. I'm condemned. But you are a savior and I need your grace. Forgive me, Lord. I will follow you. I confess your name that you are God. That you have been raised from the dead. And that I believe in you. Forgive me and show me your grace. Amen. If you're in the room and you prayed that for the first time, go tell somebody. Go talk to somebody in a small group afterward, or Sunday school class afterwards. There are a couple around. If somebody brought you today, tell them. If you came alone, actually because of communion, our elders are going to be in the office just outside these doors to pray. Go talk to them. During communion, if I remember, it seems like it shouldn't be hard to remember because it's one to two minutes away. I'm going to go stand over there. You can come down and talk to me. But if you pray that for the first time, not the 15th time, we want to talk and pray with you then too, but for the first time, come tell us. We would love to know and we would love to talk to you about following Christ. For many of the rest of you, you've already put your faith in Christ you need to leave these doors as an ambassador. I want you to pray right now. I'm not going to lead you in this one. I want you to pray. I'm going to let it be quiet. For your empty chair. For our pews and our parking lot. That it would be filled with people. This is the rest of the empty chair. That you're going to invite to church. That you're going to pray would come to faith. That you're going to offer a Bible if you don't have a Bible to give them, contact the church. If the church doesn't have them, we have them in the youth snack bar. You can go take them. Give them out. If we run out, we'll buy more. And if we're blowing the church budget by handing out too many Bibles someday, that's a problem I would like to tackle. I think you guys will tackle that one if we ever face it. And then the fourth one, this shouldn't scare us. We're ambassadors just talking about the power of God, that you'll commit to sharing the gospel with them that you won't just leave it at those three. They're good, but the, you'll look for that open door. I want you to pray for those things right now. You've probably thought of somebody. If you can't think of anybody that you know that is not a Christian, pray about that too. Lord, introduce me to somebody at work or in my family or my neighborhood or anywhere else that you would have me share the gospel with. I'm going to give you a minute to pray in silence. But pray for the people that are your empty chair or your empty pew or your empty parking spot. And here's the difficult part. They might park in your spot. You might have to find the empty one yourself. But that's okay. That's another problem that we're happy to tackle. But I want you to pray for the people that God's put in your life that you are compelled to be an ambassador to in a very grace-filled and free way. No pressure, 
all opportunity, but pray that God would use you in the next week or month. Let's pray. Lord, give us an excitement to be your ambassadors this week, that we know the power of the gospel, your great, amazing, redeeming power to change lives, that we would remember the simplicity of the gospel and that we would find opportunities because you've created them to share it with others that need to know your power with our friends and loved ones, or even those we struggle to get along with that need to know redemption and need your grace. Lord, make us faithful ambassadors, people who confess the good news. Amen.